an example 9.1, I'm confused why spontaneous transitions can only occur one step lower on the ladder. Why couldn't the transition be multiple steps with higher amounts of emission? So this was the harmonic oscillator. So that's because uh, they made the dipole approximation. So if you included higher order terms suppressed by uh, more powers of the wavelength, then you could do those, but their probability amplitudes are smaller. So those are like the forbidden transitions in atoms. I guess I'm confused as to why a decay rate describing atoms leaving an excited state can be represented by a classical oscillator equation. So <clears throat> what he showed was that given a harmonic oscillator, the answer you get from quantum mechanics and the answer you get from classical uh, acceleration formula agrees neglecting the h-bar term. But that doesn't mean that uh, atoms are exactly like oscillators. But in the, they're like oscillators in that for a particular frequency, you can usually approximate it by a two-level system, and there's some transition rate there. So if you don't care where that transition rate comes from, then you can just approximate it by an oscillator for that particular level. Can you clarify why these transitions are called misleading and forbidden while they can occur? So these forbidden transitions are, we're making the dipole approximation. If you go out to higher order, you can do quadrupole, octopole, whatever pole you want. Uh, but those are suppressed, usually, at least if the wavelength is much larger than the size of the system you're looking at. So the probability amplitudes are smaller so the lifetimes are longer. So they're a small correction, usually. So they're not exactly forbidden. They're suppressed. Suppressed would be a better name. I'm not clear on what the selection rules mean physically. What they mean is that the photon carries spin 1, so you can only make a transition that uh, conserves angular momentum. So you have to change L by 1 unit and M by 0, or plus or minus 1 units. Is there any bigger picture that we can see these selection rules taking place in the physical world? Well, <clears throat> usually it's hard to see quantum mechanical effects without uh, doing some something very clever. But uh, people are looking at uh, using lasers to rotate molecules and cells. So if you have a nanoparticle in a trap somewhere, the laser can carry angular momentum from the photon spin. So when the thing absorbs those photons, you can start it spinning. That's what people are working on. So I don't know if cells are big enough. They're bigger than atoms. Uh, I don't understand what it means when it talked about different decay modes for an excited atom. How can they decay into a large number of different low-energy states? So in principle, a high state can go to any state lower than it. There'll probably be a there'll be one transition that has the biggest amplitude probability amplitude, but if the other amplitudes are non-zero, then it can go to any of those. But each individual atom randomly picks one of those for its decay. So each atom decays to a particular state, but it has many to choose from. Where does Griffiths come up with 0.368 as the value of the lifetime of the state? That's not what he said. He said that after one lifetime, 0.368 are left. So that's e to the minus 1. So that's the definition of a lifetime. Uh, I was confused when Griffiths took the limit as h-bar goes to zero at the end of section 9.3.2. I 
Was he letting it go to zero because it's negligible in the classical energy levels? Or is there something else going on? No, that's it. He just wanted to show that you recover the classical formula when you neglect H-bar corrections, which for large energies is a good approximation. I'm very concerned that the plan review session conflicts with one of my classes. <laughs> so uh, only about 14 out of 46 people voted in the final runoff, but uh, I will post the, I'm going to go over the practice midterm, I'll post those solutions on SmartSite this morning, and we'll have an emergency office hour Tuesday, 5 to 6. <laughs> Does anyone have a class at 5 o'clock on Tuesday? Okay, I hope not too. Okay, so uh, we're covered, I hope. Uh, how would incoming photons of all energies affect the lifetime? Well, <clears throat> uh, I think you covered it last quarter, quantum Zeno effect. Did you guys do that? Um, so if you measure, you have a state and you measure that it's in that state, then you let it go, it starts... Uh, it has the probability to decay, and so the probability exponentially decreases that it's still in that state. But if you keep measuring it, that it's in that state, then you reset the clock. That's the quantum Zeno effect. So uh, in induced transitions, they've done this experimentally. They haven't been able to do it for spontaneous transitions, but according to the theory, it should work there too. So if you keep measuring it, keep to show that it's in that state, then you can keep it in that state forever, or at least a very long time. Because if you keep measuring it at time intervals much shorter than the lifetime, then uh, it can't decay. Are decay modes similar to degeneracy? Um, in the sense that what we're doing is taking an atom that has a discrete uh, energy level, what we're doing is comparing it to another uh, system where there's an atom plus a photon. Atom plus the photon has the same energy. So it's that's the final state. It's degenerate with the initial state. The thing is that there are many different um, states. There's an infinite number of states for the final state because the photon can go off in any direction. So it's an infinite degeneracy. And that's actually one way to think about why it does the decay. What it's doing is putting in a perturbation that mix two degenerate levels so they can oscillate back and forth. But you're starting with one particular initial state and then let, letting it go to an infinite number of states. The probability that it get back to the first state is zero. Okay, any other questions? Yep. Should we be concerned if we don't see our question now? Is that uh, anything? No. Just... Uh, we only have time to go over so many. Um, so last time, we're doing problem 9.11. Problem 9.11. Calculate the lifetime of uh, the N equals 2 hydrogen states. And what we saw was that just like in the Stark effect, we can use parity. Instead of calculating all the 16 possible well, not 16, but uh, we've got <coughs> there's four possible three-dimensional overlap integrals to do. If we look at the parity individually flipping x, y, or z to minus x, minus y, minus z, it tells us that lots of those overlaps have to vanish. 
So we need, since the ground state is even, and x, y, and z that appear in the dipole matrix element is odd, we need to start from an odd wave function, otherwise we'll get zero. And I guess there are actually 12 integrals because we get to choose x, y, or z, and then which initial wave function. But separately, <coughs> we saw that the ground state's even under everything. 2, 1, 0 is even under x goes to minus x and y goes to minus y, and odd under z goes to minus z. So for 2, 1, 0, we can have this guy non-zero, but these guys will vanish. And for 2, 1, plus or minus 1, if you write out the wave function, it looks like this. And uh, by doing looking at these pictures of the angles, um, you can see that it's odd under x and y inversion and even under z. Or you can notice that r times sine theta e to the plus or minus i phi is really x plus or minus i y. So that's obviously odd under x and y flipping and even under z flipping. So that means this guy will have matrix elements with x and y in the middle going to the ground state, but not with z. So that means out of the 12 possible integrals, we only have to calculate three. So the only non-zero matrix elements are 2, 1, 0 going to 1, 0, 0 through z. Two, one plus or minus 1 going to the ground state through x, or 2, 1, plus or minus 1, going to the ground state through y. Uh, I'll spare you the details. So since this has units of dimension, we're going to get something proportional to the Bohr radius. And you get this beautiful 2 to the 7th over 3 to the 5th root 2. Uh, for the x matrix element, you get minus plus 2 to the 7th over 3 to the 5th. And for the y matrix element, get the same thing up to a factor of plus or minus i. We'll see why later why we get just a factor of i between these two. Is there a plus or minus on that or is it no, just a minus? Just a minus. So the full <coughs> matrix elements written in our dipole moment was the r vector. So the 2, 0, 0 state doesn't have any matrix elements for the dipole operator to the ground state. So that means it can't decay this way.
So I'm going to write these out as vectors instead of components. So it's just rewriting what we had. So what we need is the square of the dipole moment matrix element. So for the the decay from two zero zero to one zero zero. That matrix element zero, so there's no decay. For the two one zero, and the two one plus or minus one. can see that you get the same matrix element. In each of these cases, because you sum up the squares, so for this guy there's only one component, but it has a root 2. These guys, when you sum the squares, uh, they both give you 2 to the 7th over 3 to the 5th squared, so you get that twice. So you get the same answer either way. And there was an extra, there's a factor of E. This dipole moment was minus E times that. So we get EA squared, 2 to the 15th, because we have 2 to the 7th squared times 2 over 3 to the 10th. Now, uh, Einstein's formula for the spontaneous emission rate had a factor of the frequency cubed. So that frequency is the difference in the energy levels. So E2 has a 1 over 2 squared in it. So it's a quarter of E1. So the spontaneous emission rate has that frequency cubed, the dipole moment matrix element squared, and there was a 3 pi epsilon naught h bar c cubed that we got from the Planck distribution. Uh, so we just have to simplify this mess. We've got a 3 cubed, E1 cubed, mm, 4 cubed is 2 to the 6th, h bar cubed, then from p squared, you can e squared, a squared, 2 to the 15th, over 3 to the 10th. So if we write one of those E1s as uh, something more useful. <coughs> so E1 is uh, alpha squared mc squared over 2. That's actually what the minus sign 
That's the same as minus h bar squared over 2ma squared, the Bohr radius. And uh, so that a squared is going to cancel against this a squared, so we'll get something in terms of uh, alphas. And we we know that alpha is e squared over four pi epsilon naught h bar c. So we can get rid of this epsilon naught junk. <coughs> so since E1 is alpha minus alpha squared mc squared <coughs> over 2, we'll get an alpha to the fourth. So finally, we have a 2 to the 10th over 3 to the 8th, alpha to the 5th, mc squared over h-bar. Uh, so if you plug in the numbers, this is 1,024 over 6,561, which is about 0.15. You can write it in terms of 1 over the Bohr radius times alpha to the fourth. And if you actually plug in the numbers, that's 6.27 times 10 to the eighth inverse seconds. So because you have a, that rate gives you an effective width to your um, line, so that's the natural line shape. So the width of the line is h-bar over tau, which is just h-bar a. So it's 0.15 alpha cubed times twice the energy. Which is about uh, 10 to the minus 7 times the binding energy. So that when you look at the spectrum of atoms like hydrogen, you see very sharp lines. That's because this natural line width is very small compared to the binding energy. And that's because of this alpha cubed. So the lifetime is 1 over A, so that's about 10 to the minus 9 se seconds. For the n equals 2, L equals 1 states. The lifetime for the L equals 0 states is infinite. At least in the approximation we made. What actually happens is that it can emit two photons simultaneously. 
So if you have two photons, you combine their angular momentum, you can get a total j equals zero state out of two j equals one states. So then you can serve angular momentum by emitting two photons at the same time. And then you can calculate that the lifetime is the tenth of a second, which is pretty long for atomic time scales. So when you're building a laser, it's useful to have these long-lived states that are metastable because they're, they violate the selection rules for dipole transitions which means they'll live a long time because they either have to go through multi-photon emissions or through forbidden transitions, which means suppressed transitions. So if you can have that a metastable state as the top state in your laser, you can pump the atoms up to higher states. They'll fall down to this state and then sit there and wait for your photon in your laser to come and stimulate them. Any questions? Okay, let's do some selection rules. So, instead of calculating all these overlaps every time, it would be nice to have some prescription that allows you to guess which ones to calculate, or to know, even. So if we look at the commutators, of angular momentum with the dipole moment. Um, we'll find out a lot of these things are zero. So we're looking at the angular momentum uh, because these are all about conserving angular momentum. And we're lo looking at commutators with position because it's the position that appears in the matrix element. So we worked out a long time ago that LZ commutes with Z. So if we look at the matrix element of that commutator, so LZ acting over here gives us an M prime. LZ acting on this guy gives us an M. factor of h bar. So this tells us that the matrix element of z times m prime minus m has to be zero. So either the matrix element is zero or m prime minus m is zero, which means m prime equals m. <clears throat> so, to have this to be non, a non-zero matrix element, the m values have to be the same. And we can play the same trick with <coughs> Yep. Are 
Um, so LZ is a permission operator, so I can act. So, well, LZ is permission, so because it's permission, I can act this way without doing anything fancy. Or you could take the complex conjugate of M, but it's an integer, so which tells you that it's permission. So it's kosher. So if we do the same thing with LZ commuting with X, that commutator we found was IH bar Y. side we'll get a matrix LM of Y and here we can play the same trick. So we'll get an H bar M prime minus M matrix element of X. So that tells us that we didn't have to calculate Y separately from X because if we do X then there's just a, some factor of I times m prime minus m times the x matrix element. And we do the same trick with LZ commuting with Y. And then on the right-hand side, we'll get Y matrix element. <coughs> and then you can plug this guy back in here. And then you'll get that Y is related to itself times a factor of uh, M prime minus M squared. So M prime minus M squared equals 1, or these x and y matrix elements are 0. <coughs> so if m doesn't change, you can go through the z matrix element. If m changes by one unit, then you can go through X and Y. That's what we saw in our example. So transitions are allowed only if delta M is plus or minus one or zero. dipole transitions. Then 
if you want to get fancy, you can look at uh, L squared. Meeting with L squared, meeting with R. So because R is appearing on the right, this will tell us about the same matrix elements, but the coefficients will involve L instead of M because it's L squared that's appearing. So if you go through that exercise, you find that to get a transition, you need delta L equals plus or minus 1 using the same kind of logic, but obviously with more mathematical pain. So <clears throat> this is one way that we see that the photon carries spin 1. Because it carries spin 1, when you make it transition like this, you have to remove one unit of angular momentum. Yep. Is the actual proof that photons carry spin 1 fall from something like this, or is it still in point well, the, the same, you do the same kind of calculation, essentially, in quantum field theory. It's just that you know how the photon couples to a current. You write the current out in terms of electrons. You see how the spin, what the spin of the current is, and that same calculation shows you this, you get the same dipole coupling. So once you have that dipole coupling, it follows that the photon has to have spin one in order for angular momentum to be conserved. So we're assuming that angular momentum is conserved, which by experiment we know it is. So. Okay? In field theory, you would just write down a Lagrangian that can automatically conserves angular momentum, and then if you know the spin of the electron, then it tells you what the spin of the photon is. Yes. It doesn't have an electromagnetic coupling to a current. It couples to uh, something that's ro rotationally invariant. And that's why it's spin zero. Pardon me? It's the operator that gives electrons a mass, for example. And masses are rotationally invariant, but currents have a direction, so they're not rotationally invariant. So the photon has a spin because it couples to something that's a vector. The Higgs couples doesn't have a spin because it couples to something that's a rotational scalar. I'm just talking rotational invariance, not... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have some pretty pictures. Hopefully. <clears throat> so what we did in that explicit example was we took a matrix element. So what were we doing? We multiplied the uh, wave functions together from some initial state to some final state. 
So if you look at these wave functions, the ground state is down here at small r. The excited state is out here at bigger values of r. So the overlap, which is the product, is concentrated in this region. Now if you look at a different, a more excited state, so this is the same ground state wave function, but it's on a different scale now because this guy sticks out way further. It's an excited state. Uh, so if you look at the overlap there, it's much smaller because the excited state is out farther. So it doesn't, the probability that the electron would be where the ground state electron is is much smaller. So that transition amplitude is smaller because the wave function overlaps are smaller. That's what all the mathematical machinery is telling you when you calculate these matrix elements. So you have to make a transition from an electron that wants to sit in this wave function. Suddenly, it emits a photon, but it has to be now in this wave function. So it's more likely to happen if it's in a place where it could have been in either one. So when you apply those uh, wave function overlaps, you get these selection rules, which tell you that the photon, you have to admit, emit one unit of angular momentum. So you can go from L equals 0 to L equals 1 states, and L equals 1 states to L equals 0 states, and L equals 2 to L equals 1, and so on. So that's the pattern that you see reflected in spectral lines in hydrogen, but in other atoms as well. And it doesn't just apply to atomic physics, you can apply it to particle physics. So here's a similar kind of diagram. There's a bunch of energy levels. There's a bunch of allowed transitions where you emit a photon. But this is a system of B quarks, a B quark and an anti-B quark. So the masses are uh, in thousands of MeV instead of electron volts. But the same exact same principles apply. We're conserving angular momentum, so we can only go from states where we change the angular momentum by one unit. So it's, the selection rules are very general. Anything else? I think that's my last pretty picture for today. Yeah. That's, for, that's for Friday, after we recover from the exam. So everyone knows there's a review session at 3, it's in 55 over there, an emergency office hour tomorrow at 5. Okay, so if there's no more questions, I'm going to start. We're going to do nuclear magnetic resonance. Yep? Is there another practice online that It's on the webpage. And I'll put the solutions to the practice midterm on SmartSite. Except when I was grading this morning, your, your quizzes this morning, SmartSite crashed. So hopefully it'll work. Um, <clears throat> okay. Problem 9.20, yeah? 
Problem 9.2L is uh, magnetic resonance. Which is going to let us do nuclear magnetic resonance. So suppose we have a spin half particle. And it has a gyromagnetic ratio gamma. And we put it in a peculiar magnetic field. So there'll be a piece in the XY plane that we'll call BRF. RF stands for radio frequency. And we're going to have that guy rotating with some angular frequency omega. So as time progresses, the, this RF magnetic field is rotating in the XY plane. Angular frequency omega. And then we'll have a constant magnetic field in the z direction. So this is radio. This is static. And if you put a spin half particle in a static magnetic field, we know that there's a Lamour precession. with a frequency omega naught given by gamma b naught. And we also know that the Hamiltonian is gamma times b dotted into the spin. And for spin half, we can represent the spin by our 2 by 2 Pauli matrices. So just plug in sigma x is 0, 1, 1, 0. Sigma y is 0 minus i, i 0. And everyone can remember sigma z because that's the easy one. It's diagonal with 1 minus 1. And this looks like exactly the kind of problem that we know how to solve using a time-dependent perturbation theory. Pardon? Bottom left. The, the, there is. So that it's Hermitian. So if you think of B0 as the unperturbed problem that we've already solved, that's the Lamour procession. Typically, we'll make E0 much bigger than BRF anyway. And then there's a little perturbation, and it's only off-diagonal, just like we assumed it was going to be when we did time-dependent perturbation theory.
And it's even simpler than that. Because the perturbation is just this e to the i omega t instead of cos omega t. So because of that, that uh, rotating wave approximation that he mentioned when he talked about Rabi flopping actually becomes uh, an exact solution. So, suppose we start out at time t, our wave function is a of t spin up, b of t spin down, and a squared plus b squared are going to add up to 1. We put that in our time-dependent Schrodinger equation. So on the left-hand side, we'll have a dot and b dot. On the right-hand side, we have our Hamiltonian matrix. Acting on AB. And if we explicitly write out all the terms, so we get two first order differential equations in time. And to make life simple, we'll define some new constants. So this omega is, capital omega is the gyromagnetic ratio times BRF. And omega naught was gamma times B naught, the static magnetic field. I'll just write this as So actually, we don't even have to do perturbation theory because there's an exact solution. You can find this exact solution by guessing the answer. It's just like the Rabi problem. If you're, if you're on the exam and you can guess the exact answer, no one should complain unless they think you're cheating. But uh, you could guess this because you read the problem on Robbie. I wouldn't expect you to guess this. But since it's available, let's use it. It's an omega prime, t over 2, pvi omega t over 2. 
square omega prime is the square root of omega minus omega naught squared plus capital omega squared. And uh, I'll put in the online notes how you check that. You check that by plugging it back into these equations and painfully grind it out that both sides are equal to each other. But I'm going to spare you that it's worth it since we're out of time. Lucky you. So I'll see some of you at 3 o'clock or on Wednesday for the midterm. Hmm? What? Or tomorrow for emergency office hours. Yeah.